everyone. Everybody's doing well. Um, and, uh, I went to the Good Shepherd uh, Presbyterian Church this morning and preached there. And it's gotta say, uh, um, it was quite an emotional service because of uh, uh, some of the members in the church like suffering quite a bit. Um, and yeah, I really saw uh, the beauty of body of Christ. I think they, the whole church was really grieving for them. And, and I uh, preached on the sermon that um, worked with the situation in the church. And uh, I guess I'm just sharing just to uh, help you know where I'm coming from this morning. And yeah, hopefully I won't like cry during this sermon. I think I haven't really processed my emotion yet. Um, so, but yeah, again, I think it was um, such a blessing seeing the uh, community of Christ really coming together for those who are suffering. Uh, just seeing that, yeah, God is really working through uh, people um, around us, and I think uh, we should always remember that no matter what we go through, we're never alone. Uh, that's what communities are for. So, uh, with that, I uh, just want to really encourage us to keep praying uh, for our retreat coming up. Um, you know, I feel like when we started announcing, it was like months away, but uh, it's actually happening this Friday. So uh, make sure to uh, come if you uh, register. Uh, but please pray for the retreat. I think, uh, first of all, pray for uh, Pastor Nathan Lee, uh, who will be coming to our retreat to speak, um, the three sermons, um, you know, Friday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, just pray that God would really uh, grant him strength and uh, his heart. Also pray for his family who's joining us as well. Uh, pray also for those who are serving, you know, in uh, various ways throughout the retreat, and uh, pray for the church, you know, that this retreat will uh, go beyond just an event, but it will really, you know, bring us together and uh, really help us to go deeper with God and with one another. Uh, but yeah, this, it's this Friday, and uh, we'll be having our Sunday service next week at the retreat. So I'm sure uh, we'll do more announcements about that later on, but um, the retreat is next week, so quite excited. All right, so today uh, we will look into Psalm 90. And just to give a heads up, it's a sober psalm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it deals with a topic that may not be comfortable, um, topics such as death and wrath of God. Uh, but I really felt uh, convicted about this passage um, and I hope that we can really uh, hear, you know, God's message and God's voice through uh, this psalm together. Uh, three points I'll be sharing uh, from this message will be the everlasting God, uh, the futile humanity, and thirdly, the redeemed humanity. The title for this sermon is 
teach us to number our days. First, the everlasting God. I haven't read the passage, have I? Okay. Let me uh, read the passage for us, and then uh, please bear with me. Uh, Sorry about that. I'll pray, and then we'll jump right into the sermon together. So let's uh, read this passage together. Uh, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, And ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the, morning, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our ears to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain, we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God God be upon us and establish the work of our hands um, upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, uh, we uh, are thankful that you welcome us. Uh, You are so eager to feed our hearts um, through this time. And we are, all of us here in this room are um, coming from different places, God. And uh, you as their uh, father and creator knows uh, each uh, one of their situations and hearts. So Lord, uh, I entrust them to you. Uh, As I speak your word, may uh, your spirit um, help them be attentive to what you have to say in their specific situations, God. Thank you, Lord, for praying this name. Amen. So stop right in. First point, the everlasting God. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The word Lord there, uh, it's not all caps. So this is not God's covenant name, Yahweh. We looked at that last week, how when it's all caps, it's talking about that specific name, Yahweh. Rather, 
uh, this word Lord translates the Hebrew word Adonai, uh, which means Lord or Master. So Moses, you know, who is the author of the Psalm, Moses is depicting God as the supreme master of all creation. But this supreme ruler, as we see here, is also a caring one to those under his rule. You, know, you can think of the words there in the verse, dwelling place, as home. You know, a place to live in and to feel secure in. So God, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, you know, he has been responsible for the well-being of his creation. And it's really because of his fatherly care over us, particularly you know, humanity, uh, that we haven't gone out of control. <laughs> Any molecule that you know, go rogue can destroy the whole universe, but God hasn't let that happen. He is the caring uh, creator and sustainer. And then we see the phrase there, in all generations. Um, this really speaks of God's greatness because what that means is that God is not bound by time or generation. You know, pe- generations come and go, people you know, live and die, and, but God is beyond that frame and is able to rule and care for people across all history. He is an eternal God. And Moses speaks more about that eternality of God in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Simply that, you know, even before the earth and the world were created, you know, God was there. He existed. He's an everlasting, indestructible, infinite God. There's none other. So Moses, in this section then, simply is wanting us to acknowledge the grandness of God in our lives, in the, in the world, you know, who, you know, even though he's majestic, and yet he cares for us, that we utterly, as feeble creatures, need God for every minute. Otherwise, we you know, disintegrate immediately. If we go to the next slide, uh, in March... Uh, 2022, uh, astronomers working with the Hubble Space Telescope uh, photographed uh, this this one, uh, which is, uh, they named it uh, Irandel. It's supposedly the most distant individual star from the Earth ever detected. So it was a big deal. And they calculated the distance from this star to the Earth to be 12.9 billion light years from Earth. What that means is that it, tes- it, it, takes, it has taken 12.9 billion years for that, the light of the star to reach the Earth or the telescope. 12.9 billion years. And NASA explains that this also means that the, this star was shining a billion years after the Big Bang that happened at the beginning of the universe. And the website Scientific American reports that the actual distance between uh, this star and the Earth is 28 billion, uh, considering the fact that the universe has been expanding exponentially uh, since the Big Bang. 
I think what's astounding to me, if you just kind of sum up all these findings about this star, is that it's just how big the universe is. It, it, it takes 10 to 30 billion years for a light to reach our eyes. I think the universe is basically measureless. But I think what also shocks me is the age of the universe. You know, it took 12.9 billion billion years for the light of the star to reach us, and then again, even before that, there was you know, one billion years after the Big Bang. So, that the universe you know has existed for the past billions of years and more. And here I am. I just turned 37 years. So to think that, you know, so that's scientific findings, but to think more theologically now, just think that God, the creator of the universe, is bigger and infinitely older than the universe. I think that should make us stop and think about how grand he is. He goes beyond what our minds can even comprehend. Some time ago, the University of Oxford professor named Pedro uh, Ferreira, uh, he expressed, he's a world-renowned scientist, and he has a lot of accolades, but he honestly expressed frustration that even after centuries of scientific development, we only know of Five percent of the the universe, the facts, and also how it works. Only five percent, meaning that the other ninety-five percent is still in the dark. I don't know if you are familiar with the dark matter, dark energy. Anybody? I think those are the terms that scientists, you know, termed because they just couldn't figure that out. Again, go back to God. I mean, God knows how to run the universe. He has no 5%. He has 100% and more. That is God. He is an everlasting, grand Lord of the universe. And he takes care of the creation. We are at total mercy of his care. So let me challenge us a little bit. If that's a reality then, isn't it crazy how often you know, we're so prone to lose sight of God's greatness? If that's reality, if that's true, but we don't think that. And one cause might be we're just so used to looking down at our little lives and so consumed by them and the various anxieties that are involved in this little world of ours. So we forget to look up and see that there's a God who is doing all the controlling for us when we try to do that ourselves. So perhaps we need to take a little break, maybe some of us at least, take a little break from our busy schedules and make it a habit to go outside. In fact, Looking at the nature, that's a, that's a very biblical way of growing as Christian. <laughs> Go to Psalm 19. 
it tells us to look at the sky to see God's greatness. I think we ought to do that more in order that you know, we do not um, get to a place where you know, we think that we have to do all, everything to you know, run our lives when God, in fact, is the sustainer of our lives. He is our dwelling place through all generations. The eternal God. Second, the futile, futile humanity. Moses now is going to get real. He will proceed to describe the tragic reality of how estranged we are from God, even though he's our dwelling place. Verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O son of man. The word man there, in Hebrew is Adam or Adam, and along with the word dust in the verse, I think you know, if you're well-versed in the Bible, it's, it's very obvious where this verse comes from, which is Genesis 3.19. Here's how it goes. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There, Adam and Eve sinned against God, and as a result, they incurred all sorts of curses in their lives, in the world. And the most tragic of all was death. They were created to live forever, but now death has entered and cuts their lives short. So we see that in following verses, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. You know, seeing from the, the eternity of God, you know, even if a person lives a thousand years, it's still like a one day or a watch in the night, which is you know, four hours. That's how God sees it, because it's so short from his eternal perspective. Human lives are so brief because of death. Verse 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. You know, we are like feeble grass. You know, we may look lively in the moment, but another second we can be swept away you know, by death at any moment. It's, it's morbid, sure, but it is reality. God can take us away at any time. But Moses goes deeper here. You know, the physical reality of death is only a symptom of a deeper reality, namely that the eternal God, the grand God, is against us in wrath. Verses 8 through 10. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our ears to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. You know, God knows it all. He knows our sins, both public and secret. And so he's Righteous anger burns 
throughout all of our lives. So that, Moses is saying that, you know, our life is already brief and short, but even in the, in the brief period of time that we have on earth, we experience all sorts of consequence of the wrath, which namely sufferings, all kinds. And here, just caution there is, we're not saying here that every suffering is caused by God's punishment on our sins. It's not, that's not what, it, what we're saying here. Some are, yes, it is our sins. Some are caused by other people's sins done to us. And others are simply caused by the fact that we live in a fallen world that is in rebellion against God and you know, the, the punishment of God is being manifested in our broken lives. But all in all, what we see is that being sinners, living in a sinful world, we just cannot escape God's wrath in our lives. So what that means is, just like we see how it is like a sigh in verse 9, and how it is you know, toil and trouble in verse 10, instead of joy of the Creator, we, as a result of His wrath, we at best feel emptiness in our souls, and at worst, various pains. And by the way, at this point, um, if you feel that God's wrath is so unfair, like why is he so angry? Um, it could be, it could be, because that we've been so sheltered in the Western world, where God is often sanitized to fit the theology of tolerance. I mean, if you go to different parts of the world, they think very differently than the Western world, right? Especially the parts of the world where, you know, there are wars and atrocities, you know, where, you know, people are, you know, getting killed and raped left and right. They will get offended if we preach that God is just love and he does not have wrath and that he will not punish people in hell. They'll be offended because they desire cosmic accountability. They desire that their perpetrators face justice, if not on earth, at least in heaven, or at least in hell. So we've got to acknowledge that, that we've got to go beyond our cultural presuppositions to really understand what God is like. That's my encouragement here. And now going from there then, we must be honest to admit that we are sinners too. Not just those bad guys out there. We are sinners. We offend, I offend the holy and righteous God who must not tolerate any sin in anyone. That is a reality. And now, Moses presents two ways uh, that people can respond to this reality of death and God's wrath. Two ways. One is ignorance. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Here, Moses is, is lamenting that people do not fear God or you know, submit to his solution of uh, this death problem, you know, even though they're experiencing his wrath in their lives. You know, people in this camp... Uh, they instead turn away from God in their pride and self-reliance. You know, some of them you know, explain away an angry God. 
and the reality of his accountability. They live for whatever pleases them in the moment, you know, which numbs them against the, the reality of pain and, and suffering and the fearful future. Just so want to think about it. And others, uh, they do have some fear about this eternal destination, but they try to find solution instead of fearing God entirely. They try to find solution in their own efforts, whether it's their morality or, you know, religions. But neither of these attitudes solve the problems, and they remain under God's wrath. So Moses recommends an alternative here. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain or get a heart of wisdom. The numbering of our days, of course, means to know our mortality. You know, we number our days seeing that, oh, we are limited. We are going to die. And also the reality of God's wrath against us. Short life under wrath. It is really to acknowledge humbly that we are sinners uh, and are helpless unless God intervenes on our behalf. And please notice here another sign of humility. Here Moses is asking God to teach him. He's not saying, I will number my days. He's saying, rather, teach me. He's acknowledging that he cannot and will not humble himself, himself, left himself. He will refuse to grasp the direness of his, his eternal situation unless God works and penetrates our hearts first. So he's asking God to do that work. That's humility. And therefore, the heart of wisdom there is a heart that appropriately fears God and his wrath and turns to God to save us, you see? If you just fear in an unhealthy way, you'll try to figure that out by yourself. But true fear is you go to God for salvation after acknowledging that you're helpless. That's heart of wisdom. Um, you know, this one day, uh, back when I, I lived in Illinois and I was a youth pastor in Milwaukee, so we committed quite a bit between uh, Wisconsin and Illinois during those three and a half years. And uh, this one day, my wife and I were driving from Milwaukee to the airport in Chicago O'Hare to pick pick someone up. And that day, there was a blizzard. Uh, It was a really bad blizzard. And the driving condition was really, really, really bad. And at a certain point, I was driving in the left lane, and I totally lost the control of the wheel. And our car, like, literally went from the median of the interstate highway and crossed like at least four lanes. It's a big, you know, lane highway. All the way to the shoulder on the right side. And then cars swerved all the way back to the median. Um, now, as you can imagine, during those few seconds, probably like five or six seconds, I literally thought I was going to die. You know, me and Deb were, you know, she was there, and uh, I was—I literally thought this was it. Just imagine—I don't know if you have that experience, but you have no control over your wheel. 
the car is driving itself. It's going all the way to the right and somehow turns towards the left. And I literally thought that was it. But praise God, um, you know, the car stopped on the shoulder by the median. And there's only one car, you know, behind us driving close by. So it ended up being a, a minor accident with, you know, not, no serious injuries. But afterward, you know, I, I, we drove back home. I, we had to call the, the, the friend to somehow get a ride uh, to our home because um, we cannot really pick her up. So we drove back home, and after calling the insurance company and everything, I, I just sat at our kitchen table and just shaking, <laughs> shaking. And I was trying to process that myself, and, and I realized one thing that I had to admit was that up until that accident, I was acting like I was invincible in life. You know, I might have had all this like theology in the head about like how you know anything can happen, but I didn't think that an accident like it would happen to me. To the point that if the weather was that bad, it should have crossed my crossed my mind that we probably would have should have stayed behind in Wisconsin and wait until snow is over or something. But we went ahead <laughs> to keep up with our plan to pick up our friend from the airport and etc. The truth of the matter I learned that day is that yeah, God really could take away my life at any time. <laughs> I really felt that on my skin. <laughs> and therefore, I realized that the life I have right now is really a gift. God is somehow, as my dwelling place, is sustaining me from all kinds of harms. And I should use this life not to somehow fulfill and execute my plans, but I should live my life acknowledging that God is my owner and I, I should align my life with His ways. That was a uh, serious lesson that I learned from that experience. So can I ask you, you know, how do you live your life at this moment of your life, of your journey? Does your life show that God is the Lord and Master of your life? That you live in healthy fear that allows you to you know, direct every part of your life to align His will? Or is your life really yours to own? And do whatever agenda you may have with your own ambitions, even you know, with the christian terms and, and lingos. May we number our days. May we do that. Because Moses is saying that's wise. If we don't do that, we may continue to live under God's wrath without realizing it. Number our days. Last and third, the redeemed humanity. Now, once you take the road of wisdom and turn to God in healthy fear of Him, there is joy and hope. Verse 13, it says, Return, O Lord, how long? 
have pity on your servants. There, the word Lord is all caps. Moses is now invoking God's covenant name, Yahweh. And the name that God specifically gave to his people. And Moses also calls himself and his people servants, meaning that they're acknowledging God as their Lord and Master and fearing him and his wrath. So Moses here is really pleading with God to treat them according to the covenant that he promised with them because we are your people. He's reminding of the relationship that was established by God's grace. First, verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Again, the words steadfast love uh, translates the Hebrew word chesed. We've, we've looked at that in past few uh, passages, which is God's covenant love, loyal committed love to his people, not to anybody. This is a specific love that he has for specific people. It's his commitment to bless and show favor for his people. So again, Moses is asking God to do what the covenant that he promised. And at 16, same concept. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. The work there refers to God's work of salvation, his work to deliver people from trouble. So again, Moses reminding God, asking God to rise up and save them from their troubles because that's what the covenant promise said. But here comes the punchline. Here comes the reality that we are actually better off than Moses because God has answered Moses' prayer and he did save his people from their sins once and for all. So we look at the Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, um, you know, 2 to 3 and 6. Here's what it says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus has come. He lived a perfect life, and yet he received God's full wrath on the cross on our behalf. So that when we put our faith in Christ, we're justified, so that we're no longer under God's wrath, but under God's favor, under God's steadfast love because of Christ. So now we can indeed be joyful 
God restore our joy of creation and redemption. Because salvation is secure in Christ. We look back at the cross and see we are secure. Our eternity is assured. And we look towards the heaven and see that God will one day uh, come and give us full, unhindered joy, bliss in His presence. So we can truly be joyful even in in this in-between time. But one more thing. What's interesting here in this passage is that joy that Moses is talking about here is not just our uh, emotion. He goes beyond that. He, he says that it leads us to work and actually living it out in our lives. Verse 17. It says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know, before salvation, you know, all human work, whatever we do with our hands, you know, ultimately has no lasting value because you know, all we do is sinful, contributing to God's wrath. But after salvation, every believer's work is redeemed and has eternal value because God's wrath has been taken away in Jesus. Now, whatever we do in faith contributes to what God is doing in our lives, in our hearts, in our character, and it will also contribute to what God is doing in the world, in His kingdom. Whatever we do in your careers, in in our families, in our friendships, all, all that we do in our lives has eternal value now. God will use it for his kingdom. So this is an astounding hope for those who are in Christ. No longer do we worry about wrath and human misery and sigh and trouble and toil. Hopeless day in and day out work. But now, in Christ, our lives are worth living. Because we have value now. Everything we do has value. Every one of your jobs has a value when you do it in faith in Christ. And now everything we do has a clear purpose and goal. And that's awesome. Uh, if you go to the next slide, let me uh, finish with this one example. Um, here's a screenshot of a Facebook Post by one of my former uh, seminary professors, uh, Dr. Plutiman. Here he's making a tribute to his late mother. And and there, uh, apparently, that's her philosophy of life, uh, which says, Only one life to be soon passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then I also found um, another tribute that someone else made about her. If you go to the next slide. I, I quote it in full there. So this person is talking about the late mother. She goes, Loving mother, faithful wife, 
grateful grandmother, avid reader, lover of God's word, prayer warrior, choir member, friend to many, taught good news clubs, Sunday school and vacation Bible school, volunteer for you know, Midland Cancer Services and Gideon's Auxiliary, loved birds, plants, flowers, pets, was a world traveler, tennis player, and cross-country skier, was accomplished in piano, croquetting, and tatting, and uh, calligraphy, loved a good joke, and liked to tease, dramatized the lives of Mrs. Jonah, uh, Mrs. Noah, and other Bible characters. Above all, she loved her Lord passionately. Um, I think my first thought when I read, read this was, man, she lived a full life. There's a legacy there. Uh, but I thought about this you know, in light of that you know, philosophy of life um, you know, that, that she wrote, that only what's done for Christ will last. I think that was really powerful when I thought about it in that terms. I mean, you'll notice in, in that list, you know, many of these things about her are, are not works per se, right? Uh, and, and not even, you know, church-related works. Rather, they're all ordinary things she enjoyed doing on her ordinary days, such as, you know, being a loving mother, volunteering, and her hobbies. But she did these small things that she enjoyed in faith in Christ. And you see, it left a lasting impression on people around her. I think she realized that her life on earth was indeed short, like she said you know, in the, the philosophy of life statement. Life is short, one life. And she decided to do all things she does for Christ. And what, what really means there is that first and foremost, she did love the Lord passionately in her heart and grow in him. And when Jesus became her joy from inside, it oozed out into service to others. And out came that legacy that she left to the next generation. This makes you wonder, you know, what will be our legacy once we die? And I shared this, um, this passage and just um, having this heart of uh, encouraging our church to really think about these things because yeah, we are a demographically young church and uh, Lord willing, we have many years left um, within that short lifespan that we just talked about. And my hope and prayer for us uh, is that we do not get sucked into the spirit of this age these days. I mean, you know, I think of all the influencers. I don't really consider them as selfless people. <laughs> no offense to them. Because it's all about self-improvement, right? You know, how do I look prettier? How do I, you know, eat better? How do I do things better for my own pleasure? And, and you know, for my indulgence. And I think it's really easy to, you know, get aligned with that mindset in our lives and start doing things, start living our lives for me, myself, and I. And we will end up, you know, living as if we will live forever in that 
mold. But we must learn. We must learn to number our days. We must learn that God is the Lord of the universe. He is our master. He is our dwelling place. And we live for Him. And we do fear Him in the right way. We turn to Him for mercy and grace. And when we do that, when He is our one desire and is our passion, and we truly change from inside out, not just you know, doing things, but we're really changing inside out, then, only then, there will be legacy, a life well lived. And I really long for that for our church. Not just a few years of spark, but that we all finish well. Whatever God calls us home. Let's pray together.